Hello and welcome to the Uncredible Adventures podcast with me, your host Cornelius. I'm really pleased you're here with me today. This episode is called Bitter Memories and it's actually part two coming as it does just after another episode that I did about the same subject, which is Ireland. However, the two episodes are entirely separate. You don't need to have listened to the previous Ireland episode to enjoy this one. Indeed, you can listen to this one first and then go back and listen to the other one. So if this is the first episode in the series that you're listening to, just carry on with this one. That's no problem at all. You can go back and look at the back catalogue later. Apologies to my regular listeners. I've put this episode out a little later than I usually would. That's mainly due to the fact that we've had two glorious days of bank holidays here in the UK. It threw my schedule out a little bit, but actually when I was planning coming up to this week, I thought, this is going to be a great week. I'm going to have so much extra time with two days off work. But in fact, completely the opposite has happened. We've been really busy. I've been spending time with the kids. I've been having fun with the family. And I don't regret any of that at all. But the result is I found myself here very late in the day with not having recorded what I would normally record when I would. Um, But I've taken the time. I'm sitting down, planned out this episode. It's made me really excited. It's a great one. I'm looking forward to telling these stories to you and getting your reactions over Twitter. If you want to find me on Twitter, my username is at UncrediblePod. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode. I'd love to hear what you think of the show. And I'd love to hear if anything that I talk about today triggers any memories or stories that you have. Please do look me up, get part of the conversation, become part of the community. It's Saturday morning when I'm recording this. And yesterday, on Friday, there was a Jubilee event at the local park. They'd put quite a lot of work into it. So there were some food trucks and there was a big stage that had various local bands and choirs and brass bands and things like that throughout the day and into the evening. And I went with the wife and my two youngest and uh, some of the rest of our family went over to enjoy the afternoon. Packed up a picnic blanket, a couple of folding chairs and then a couple of light jumpers in case it got chilly. And and that was pretty much it. There have been weather forecasts for about the last month, uh, making it very clear that it was going to rain yesterday certainly that we should expect showers at the very least but we absolutely ignored them along with I would say probably at least 80% of the people who were there yesterday absolutely refusing to admit that something is like rain could come and ruin the enjoyment of this this day off that we'd all been looking forward to for so long so in a very British way it was almost like as if if we'd brought umbrellas and coats and things like that we'd be tempting fate we'd be encouraging the rain to come so instead everyone dressed and packed as if this was a beautiful summer aside from a few plastic union jack hats there was very little that anyone really took to keep the rain off so of course we hadn't been there long when suddenly one of the clouds blew over and very very quickly it started to rain pretty heavy rain as well i've got a lovely recording i whip my phone out and put my recording app on to make a recording of the reaction of a crowd which is a kind of combination of disbelief and anger and shrieking and people running everywhere as this rain starts to pour down on everyone's picnics I had to stop the recording a bit quicker than I wanted to because I suddenly realised that my five-year-old, he's got a bit of a phobia of rain. It happened a few years ago. Him and his mother were picking up the youngest one from nursery and it's about a 20-minute walk. So they were doing that one day and they got caught in a, a really, that was an unexpected, really heavy downpour, absolutely pelted with rain. And while his mum was having to concentrate on carrying and protecting the little one, she tried to help him, but they were totally unprepared. They were just dressed in T-shirts and nothing else. And he got absolutely blasted with the rain. 
and since then he's he's had this really sad to see but he's had this kind of phobia and he's always worried about it raining and when it starts to rain he gets anxious and feels uncertain so yeah i started to record the crowd then realized that he was distressed so i had to jump to action so i whipped up the blanket we had the picnic blanket it was plastic backed so i turned it over so we could keep the fabric side dry plastic to the sky i was sat in a chair the two kids came and i got the little one up on my lap and my bigger one came and sort of hugged the front of my legs and i pulled the plastic blanket over our heads and we had a little makeshift tent and it was really quite cozy and quite nice in there my wife had a sort of poncho i didn't notice at first but i realized after a while she'd come and sort of stood right behind me with the poncho pulled up over her head sort of protecting my back and from underneath our little makeshift tent, I kind of lifted up the side and we looked out and we could just see the chaos unfold as people were running in all directions trying to grab their stuff. Lots of people had done what we'd done, so pulled up their picnic blankets and pulled them over heads or just dived under them on the floor. Most people not turning them over, which I thought was a real fail of a basic intelligence test. Turn the, the waterproof side up to the, up to the rain and keep the fabric side down where it stays dry. There were people stood there with chairs using them as umbrellas. One family I saw had like a little, a tiny little beach shelter for one of the babies, I think. And I saw a huge family, extended family, grandma and grandpa as well, all bundling into this tiny little tent. It was kind of bulging at the sides and wobbling. And grandma hadn't quite made it in. So just out the front doors, you could just see her big bum was sticking out and getting wet in the rain. And the other thing I saw and and thought was quite unreasonable was there were some people that were prepared, families that had brought raincoats and umbrellas and various things that you'd need and were sitting there quite smugly, I thought, wrapped up in their coats with their abrollies, enjoying everyone else panicking and using picnic baskets as makeshift shelters. But soon enough, the sun came out again and it was glorious. Out came the sunshine and dried up all the rain. An incy-wincy spider climbed up the spout again and people started to recover from this. And there'd been a really, really long queue up to the ice cream van right before the rain started. And when it started raining, everyone scattered in all directions and ran to the four corners of the field. And once it stopped raining, everyone started to drift back and form back in this queue. But in a beautiful moment of Britishness, a real proper English attitude, everyone was really keen to see fairness and justice and they wanted to reform the queue exactly how it had been before. There was not a single person there taking advantage of the fact that the queue had disappeared to try and get to the front and to try and push their way in. And it was so interesting watching how the chaos unfolded because no one wanted to even imagine that they would be thought to have pushed in or to have pushed their way to the front of the queue. So it was just a a whole group of people saying, no, no, I'm sure you were in front of me. No, 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 go ahead. You, please, you go first. Please, you go first. And no one willing to actually step up and form the front of the queue. But anyway, we're seven minutes in already. I've got a very interesting episode for you. That was quite an English open for an episode about Ireland. I've got a few funny stories for you today and one that's not so funny or or indeed not funny at all. One fairly traumatic thing that I want to talk about and that is Kilmainham Jail in Dublin. Kilmainham Jail is linked very much to the British Empire and, and the time that the British Empire ruled Ireland as a colony. Now that is a much bigger story than I know how to tell. I hope over the years with this podcast we'll be able to explore that subject and we can dig into that a little bit. It's more than I can do today. So what I'm going to talk about is a very, very small part because when I do talk about the bigger picture I want to get it right. So today I'm just going to talk about one particular factor that 
stood out to me as a teenager when I visited Kilmainham Jail. But before I get to that, a slightly funnier story. So when I was a, a late teenager, 18, 19, possibly 20, we went to Dublin to spend a long weekend. If you've ever been to Dublin, you'll know that one of the main attractions they have is the Guinness Museum at St James's Gate Brewery. Guinness, of course, the absolute iconic Irish stout. The white head on it and the black beer really really iconic part of our social identity in the uk certainly from the adverts with the rolling waves with the horses galloping in them and the toucan adverts and, and various things it's, it's definitely part of our identity in the uk or certainly how we think about ireland and when it comes to st patrick's day you're certainly the correct thing to do is to go to a pub and have a pint of guinness and they will usually if you're in the right place they draw like a little shamrock in the foam on the top with the nozzle of the the beer pipe so i wasn't a guinness drinker back then i was still at the stage where i was drinking lager not enjoying it but pretending i did to try and fit in and to try and prove that i was an adult and part of the crowd Nevertheless, you've got to visit the Guinness Museum. So we went in. It's an incredible place. You walk in and, and one of the first things you see is this big waterfall they've got in the entranceway. Tribute to the River Liffey. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Possibly not. But the the river that runs through Dublin that Guinness traditionally is brewed using this soft, pure water. And you walk a little bit further and you go through a room that's got the hops, the kind of citrusy, a fresh smell of hops and and then into a, a warm yeasty room where it smells like freshly baked bread and, and all these warm cosy aromas and, and right the way through to where they do the malted barley and that is just a glorious sweet sort of almost caramel cereal smell such a it's like a it's like a fresh baked bread out of the oven in your grandma's kitchen and you walk through all of these exhibits and you get these smells and all the time you're seeing pictures of guinness and people drinking it and bigging the whole thing up so when you get to the end of the tour you kind of go up a tower to a bar right at the top and part of your entry into the tour is you get a free pint of guinness there's a pint for everyone and it's fair to say you're absolutely gasping at that point you're convinced that this guinness is going to be the only drink you ever want to drink for the rest of your life you're almost imagining a kind of butterscotch loaf of liquid bread with warm butter you oh you can you can taste it and and you get your pint pulled and they do the little shamrock on the top and you, you take it to your table and you sit there forever waiting for it to settle waiting for the white head to separate out from the black liquid and finally it's ready you've got this settled cold pint in front of you and as you look out over the rooftops of dublin you take a sip and if you're an 18 year old me you go, oh, oh, that's horrible. Oh, that tastes like, I don't know, like cold, like cold coffee and mud. Oh, disgusting. It's really bitter and really strong. And you look around and this entire visitor centre, you look, every single table is strewn with abandoned pints, most of them with just one or two sips out. Some people have sort of managed half a pint. There are a few empties as well. But I'm absolutely sure that the visitor centre at St James's Gate must throw away more pints than anywhere else in the rest of the world. I mean, what a terrible insult. It, it's, I, and, I, and I feel awful saying it. I did drink my pint. I forced myself to. I kind of gulped it down. I wouldn't say I enjoyed it. And I, and I just before you start getting angry with me, I do enjoy 
a pint of stout now. I enjoy a lot of things, you know, black coffee and things like that. As I get older, I appreciate and enjoy these tastes more and more. And now I'm sure if I did the tour, I think I'd really enjoy the pint at the end, the way it's meant to be. Why is this? What happened? It surely just can't be me that couldn't handle the taste of bitter when I was young. And it's an interesting subject, though. I'm not the only person that is unable to handle a pint of Guinness or indeed anything bitter and starts to enjoy them more as they get older. So I I did a bit of research and I looked into this. and, And the first piece is why don't you like bitter tastes when you're young? And really, this is evolutionary. So it it goes back to the fact that something bitter or a bitter taste is something that's far more likely to be poisonous or dangerous to eat than something that has a sweet taste or a mild taste. So on a really basic level, you're programmed, uh, especially when you're young, to not enjoy bitter taste, to, to see them as a heralding of something that's potentially dangerous to eat. And presumably the the children born over the over the generations as we evolved that didn't have an aversion to bitter taste were more likely to eat or to sample or to keep eating something that was going to be poisonous so we developed this very strong gene that gives us an aversion to bitter taste to protect us and then as you get older as you get a bit more experienced then your subconscious allows you to uh, use your experience a little bit more to trust that what you're eating is not going to poison you especially if it's something that you have eaten or tried before and that's what acquiring a taste is about it's about trying something enough times that your subconscious stops telling you this is poisonous this is dangerous you shouldn't eat it and starts to accept that it's something that you can quite safely and happily eat and then a weird thing happens specifically with bitter drinks like beers or coffee or red wine is that you start to crave them and people start to really enjoy that bitter taste so I had a look and there's a bit of research totally by coincidence a lady called Mary Cornelius she'd done a lot of interesting research but it's worth having a google and looking this up because some of the piece of work she did was looking at the difference between people that prefer bitter tastes in drinks and people that prefer sweet tastes and she looks into this on a genetic level so she I think sorts people out depending on what genes they've got in different they can obviously map all the genes so they know which genes decode and, and link to different parts of personality or physiology and one of the the key outcomes of this research she did is that a preference for bitter drinks so people that like bitter beers and red wine and black coffee and things like that was not linked to genes that code for taste or, or differences in taste as you might expect there's actually a far stronger correlation to genes that are related to your preference for psychoactive substances so what am i what am i talking about well the the central conclusion is that if you do like the taste of a bitter pint of guinness it's not because you have a preference for the taste of bitter it's because you like the alcohol so what happens is that you drink a cup of coffee let's say and you get that boost of caffeine it makes you feel it makes you feel good it gives you some rewards within your brain and your brain starts to link that bitter taste of that coffee to the reward you get from the caffeine or the same with alcohol in red wine or bitter or something like that and you acquire this taste and you teach your brain that every time you have a sip of a, a pint of guinness you get a slug of alcohol to your brain and slowly you start to enjoy the taste so there we are apologies for being a gormless english teenager that came over to dublin and then complained about the taste of a a pint of guinness but it's not me it's my genes it's my evolution and 
that's the same evolution that everyone across the world went through. So one of the other places that you should visit if you ever go to Dublin is Kilmainham Jail. And Kilmainham Jail, I must admit, when I went there as a teenager, I, I didn't really understand and I probably didn't care too much about the history. And it's got a really wild, broad history that interlinks with the British Empire. It's a lot of political goings on in there. Really interesting place and it can tell so many stories. Just one building, one jail says, says so much about the stories and the history of Ireland. And, and, and largely it went over my head or I was just didn't understand enough of the context to be able to understand what I was being told when I went there as a teenager. But one thing that really did stick in my mind was the terror of the potato famine and the role that Kilmainham Jail played during that time. So the Irish potato famine, or the Great Hunger as it's somewhat, sometimes called, started in 1845. Now that is... Not that long ago, 1845, 170, 167 years ago, which feels like a long time till you consider that there's conceivably and probably are people alive today who met when they were very small and the other people were very old, but who met people who were alive in 1845. It really is not that far back. And it's one of the great tragedies of, of Ireland. So there was a fungus that spread very rapidly across Ireland in 1845 that affected potatoes. It, it rotted potatoes in the ground. And that first year that it struck in 1845, nearly half the potato crops were destroyed or inedible, dug up, not able to be used. And it continued for seven years and, and, and over the re remaining seven years they say nearly three quarters of all potato crops grown in Ireland were ruined, inedible. Now Ireland at the time was a colony of the British Empire, a colony of Great Britain and the farmers that were growing these potatoes were all tenant farmers and this was their main source of income and it was the main source of food for, for a lot of Ireland, for millions and millions of people depended on these potato crops that were failing. And in the seven years up to 1852, when, when finally the potato famine finished, over a million Irish people died of starvation or diseases related to starvation, and over a million people were forced to leave Ireland altogether. There's no good news that comes out of this story. The more you look at it, the worse it gets. So you'll, you'll read things, for instance, that during the, this period, exports of things like livestock and butter and peas and various foods not just continued out of Ireland into Great Britain, but actually increased. And the British government that were ruling Ireland at that time didn't do enough. They didn't do enough to protect the people. They didn't do enough to resolve the situation. They, they mismanaged the situation. Now, whether that was incompetence or evil, you have to decide for yourself. This podcast is not going to give you even nearly enough context. And that's the big picture I talked about earlier that I'm not even going to try and tackle. I, uh, at the moment, at least, I want to do that some justice. But fair to say, it's a pretty dark history. So this is what really struck me when I was visiting Kilmainham Jail, that they told us we were looking around the cells and if you once you imagine the cells that they're, they're like a prison cell that you've seen on a, a tv drama i think we're in one of the more modern wings but nevertheless it still works so a, a prison cell is if you put a single bed in there you've probably then got about the same amount of space left in the rest of the room as that bed takes up and obviously they put double or triple 
triple bunk beds in there very very little room is, is is what i'm telling you so enough really floor space for what two adults to lie down side by side comfortably and during the period of the potato famine the there was a massive massive increase in the numbers of people that were incarcerated into Kilmainham jail so firstly a lot of it was people who were jailed for begging or for stealing food or trying to survive and this is all sorts of people a very large proportion of them were women and children so children either caught stealing or if they caught a mother stealing food or begging for food and she had children it's almost a mercy to say they didn't separate them and and leave the children to fend for themselves but the whole family would be thrown in the mother and her children would be thrown in jail it's almost unimaginably cruel And, and also i think later on in the famine people would purposely try and get arrested because the choice they they had a stark choice between starving to death or watching their family starve to death outside the jail or getting arrested put in this hellhole of a jail but at least getting a very basic amount of rations that would stop you hopefully stop you from starving to death but these rooms are absolutely tiny like i said and they talked when we were there and i wish i could remember the exact number but they were saying some of these rooms that were designed for two people at, at points were having up to 14 people crammed in you imagine this tiny little cupboard sized box room with 14 people in there all sorts of you know elderly very young children women with babies crammed into these tiny rooms fed barely nothing because there was no food to go around it it's awful and i i think of my own son yesterday scared of the rain and huddling under that blanket and how frightened he was just in that moment and it, it's almost unbearable and, and sorry to bring that vision on you but I think yeah we got to face some of these things I it is unimaginably cruel I don't want to go any further than that I try and keep this podcast light like I said let's revisit it I don't want to shy away from the the history of uh, the country that I live in even though some parts of it are, are almost unbearable to think about something much happier now i'm going to put a swish in here just to try and change the topic and and come back to the the enjoyable and fun podcast that i know you you expect and you love so the final for you stories about ireland here all come from the time that i went there on a work trip we had a, a work conference and they put us all up in a nice hotel and we had business meetings throughout the day and a little bit of a couple of team building activities and dinners and things in the evening for for three or four days through the week and we went to Cork second largest city in Ireland or certainly second largest city in Southern Ireland and on one of the afternoons we had the afternoon off the business session and we were told we were going to do a team building activity wear some casual clothes and some good shoes for walking we all arrived piled onto a coach and we were driven over to a place and when we arrived and got off the coach we saw there was a huge long line of lads with with horses or well, some of them were old men but all these guys lined up with horses and and they were pretty shabby um skinny and and, and not too healthy looking horses and they were all attached to these beautiful carriages. So one horse attached to a carriage that had bench seats for about six people. And it had all been laid on. So we went over and we, we sorted ourselves into groups of six people and climbed into the back of these carriages. And with a bit of a lurch and a shake, uh, the guy got his horse walking. He was leading it 
walking alongside it and we started moving and we started head towards these hills that we were going to take a journey over and we got to the first sort of gen and the horse started sort of struggling a bit and it was shaking and the guy was having to encourage it and the hill started to get a bit steeper and to my absolute eternal shame it took the the guy turning around saying would you would you get out and um give give the horse a chance to get up this hill a bit before we realized yeah of course we need to get out we can't let this poor horse has to drag this car up this hill so we all climbed out and the horse was was fine with just a cart and we walked along behind it it was it was lovely walking through these up these hills and and through the countryside of ireland there and then we got back to the top got to the top of the hill and the guy said all right everyone jump back in jump back in so we all climbed in and the horse started to go down the hill it was fine and then the hill got a bit steeper and the horse's sort of feet started skidding a bit and it looked a bit shaky so we all we all jumped out again because the, the weight of us was this time pushing against the horse after that point none of us wanted to get in again we were all concerned for for this poor horse but the guy who was giving this his tour I, I think he probably had half an eye on the fact that he wanted a tip at the end of it so and he knew that he couldn't if we if we didn't go in the the cart for the whole journey he wasn't going to get a tip so he's really insistent he kept saying come on come on get back in get back in so we had to to get back in and we spent the be- the best part of an hour climbing in and out of this cart sort of getting in for 45 seconds while the road was perfectly flat or a very slight downhill and the horse was fine and then we were all piling out every time we got to any part of a hill to um, give the poor thing a chance. But the whole time we were in the car or walking behind this horse, it had like clumps of hair, loose hair, Not you know, it wasn't, there weren't big bold patches on it. But you know, it's a horse, I think, normally I, when I ever encounter a horse, it's one that's been really well looked after. So I don't know if this horse was unhealthy at all, it might have been fine but to me it looked fairly unkempt and it had it hadn't been brushed for a while so it had these clumps of hair and bits of hair flying out and blowing into the into us behind it in the wind which was all right for most of us apart from one guy that I was with the first thing we noticed is one of his eyes started to swell up and close so he ended up like he was winking with one eye really swollen up and then on the other side of his face his bottom lip started to puff out and started to get bigger and bigger and he was trying to be you know he's trying to be brave didn't want to make a fuss i think was a bit embarrassed but i was saying to him mate you're not your you know your eyes really swollen up your other one's starting to go your your lips are swelling are you you're allergic to horses right and he said yeah yeah i don't i am but you know when do you see a horse i, I never see a horse so i don't really think about it um and i said if you, you know have you taken any antihistamine he said no no i haven't taking it because what what are the chances that you run into a horse it's the only thing i'm allergic to but he was getting more and more <laughs> swollen up as we went and he was breathing it out but i started to think well what is going to happen we we're now by this point we're about 45 minutes away from anywhere that a car could get to you could just about get this horse and car up these lanes you definitely couldn't drive a car along there we'd been going for about 45 minutes and I was thinking, what's going to happen if this guy breathes in this hair? Presumably his his throat is going to start to constrict. You know, we've got a, a real medical emergency. I started to get really worried at that point and started wondering who did the risk assessment on this activity, this team-building activity. It was starting to look more and more like it might have been a headcount reduction activity. Anyway, fortunately, before this guy started to struggle breathing, and, I, and I'm... I'm laughing nervously there. I don't think there's anything funny about that at all. 
but we got to a little we came over the last hill um, thankfully and and this horse was going to go back with an empty cart and we gave the guy his tip and there was a few boats a few speed boats tied up waiting for us it was great fun so we all piled in these speed boats and they handed us these like thin plastic disposable packamax as we got on none of us put them on we thought oh come on it's not raining what do we need that for and, and immediately once we're in the boat and they cast off the ropes and the guy started roaring it across this huge lake uh, and the water was spraying up and soaking us in the back and the wind was caning us and suddenly everyone's like struggling to try and in you know we're going at like 40 miles an hour on this boat in the wind and rain everyone's trying to get these sort of cling film <laughs> Packamax on over their head and getting them stuck to their face. It was one of the funniest. I, I wish I'd taken some photos, and I don't have any photos of that moment. But yeah, the sight in that in those conditions of everyone struggling with these plastic Packamax trying to trying to get their capes on. Luckily, the the water and the the wind and and the spray had washed away the the horse hair or the horse skin or whatever it was that were causing my friend's allergy and. By the time we, we'd been going for about 20 minutes, he was back to normal and, and everything was safe. Um, and we got to the point where we got in sight of the dock where we were going to be uh, landing. We were you know, a few metres away. We asked the guy to stop the boat. Everyone was soaked to the skin anyway. So we, we left our phones and valuables on the central seat in the boat and everyone jumped overboard and swam back to the shore. A wonderful, wonderful trip. And it turned and it went on into, we all went and got changed. And that evening they put on a nice dinner for us and it had entertainment that was a, a guy doing Irish dancing. A guy and two two women doing Irish dancing. And he was sort of billed as having something to do with Michael. Now clearly he wasn't Michael Flatley, but I, I would imagine if you are anything to do with Irish dancing in Ireland, catering to, to foreign tourists, then you definitely put somewhere in your billing that you have danced with Michael Flatley or you know him or you're inspired by whatever it was. So I can't remember the exact story. I think he was part of the Michael Flatley dance experience without being the man himself. And it was great fun. You know, they had everyone up doing a bit of dancing. We were clapping and singing and cheering and everyone had a drink. Really good crack. And after that show was over and sort of the dinner was over and it turned into a bit more of a relaxed part of the, the evening, people went to the bar and things like that. And the guy left and one of the girls left, but another girl stayed behind and she went over and she started chatting to, to one of the young, good-looking guys in my team. And they spent the entire evening together, very intimate at the bar, talking and laughing with each other and flirting. It was very nice to see. Everyone had a, a great evening. We had a few drinks very high spirits and it was our our last evening in Ireland and we thoroughly enjoyed the day what a what a great experience so went to bed fairly late that night and the next morning when people started to meet for breakfast and, and get ready for the journey home we started to survey the damage and hear some of the tales from the night before and one of the the other guys I worked with had I don't know the exact dynamic, but his his wife was quite anxious, and whenever he travelled on business, she found it quite difficult and was 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 worried about him when he was away. I think to make things worse, just before he'd left, they'd had an argument about something, so he'd left on bad terms, and it put a bit of a cloud on on the whole journey for him anyway. But the one thing that he always did, wherever he was, whatever was happening, was that when he went to bed, he sent her a text to say, "Look, I'm back. I'm going to bed." 
see you tomorrow or whatever it was only he'd possibly because they'd had this argument whatever it was he'd, he'd had one too many the night before he'd been a little bit reckless um had a few too much to drink and had gone back to his room and had not sent her the text or not given her the call or whatever it was agreed he would do he hadn't done it and he'd woken up the next morning without many memories but he'd woken up completely naked in the bathtub in his room with about an inch of freezing cold water around the bottom of him and as he looked around and sort of slowly remembered where he was and how he'd got there he looked and on the toilet seat right next to the bathroom was a note written on the headed paper notepad from the hotel saying and it it just said your wife has been calling and he got up and he walked out the bathroom and he looked and there was another that had obviously been pushed under the door just into the sort of little hallway in his hotel room that that said again please call your wife she's you know anxious to to hear from you and he looked at his phone and he had you know dozens and dozens of missed calls so he kind of pieced together what had happened and, and he'd been drunk he'd come back thrown his phone and his stuff on his bed got undressed decided to have a bath um, only run it to about an inch deep, luckily, got in the bath and fallen completely asleep. And while he was asleep in the bath, his wife had been trying to phone his phone. And after, you know, a couple of hours and 20 calls with no answer, she started to get worried that something was wrong with him. <laughs> the whole time he was fast asleep. Um, so she so she started to ring the hotel and she rang reception and reception tried to, to ring his room. And they said he's not answering his call. And I think after, you know, half an hour, she rang back and they said, OK, we'll, we'll go up. So they went up and they knocked on the door and he didn't answer the door. So they stuck a, <laughs> stuck a note under the door saying, look, your wife's been calling. Please, can you call her urgently? And then I think another half an hour went by and uh, they said, sorry, he didn't answer his door. And she was really worried by this point. She said, please, can you go and check that he's OK? So someone from reception had gone up to let themselves into the room to check that he was all right had come through found him half asleep in the bathtub and sort of said sir sir are you okay and he 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 was awake enough you know he wasn't unconscious he said yeah leave me alone i'm fine i'm fine so they had just written this quickly written this note and left it on the toilet seat for him to hopefully see because he wouldn't respond to them and gone back and, and and given the wife the news that i think probably reassured her that he was still alive but probably didn't calm it down and he'd say oh he's half asleep in the bath so we just left him he was well and truly in the doghouse not looking forward to to going home and he'd obviously called her in the morning and tried to smooth things over but clear he was going to have to have some uh, conversations when he got back and then the next person i saw was this young lad who had been chatting with the irish dancer the whole evening they'd been chatting away they'd been having a great time you know the last time i saw them they'd moved into one of the the cozy sort of snug areas of the lounge bar in the hotel and were having a lovely intimate evening so i kind of i said to him you know a little bit of oh you you know you seem to be getting on very well with that girl last night how did how did things go you know did you raise my eyebrows to him a bit and he and he and he looked at me and he said he said yeah i think he said oh i you know i kept thinking that maybe she might want to do something with me but I was waiting for her to give me a sign I was waiting for her to you know I wasn't sure whether I was imagining it or whether she was really interested or not and I said oh well she did 
she did seem very interested in you. From what I saw, you know, certainly I think she's giving you a lot of attention. He said, oh, I don't know. I, I kept thinking she was. But actually, she she seemed more interested in the hotel and, and the building than, than getting to know me. And I said, what... what, what what do you mean? That she, what do you mean she was more interested in the building? He said, well, the whole evening, I kept, you know, every time I was chatting to her and every time it felt like, you know, we were starting to get towards that part of the conversation, she was saying things like, do you know, I've, I've danced in this hotel hundreds of times. We've done so many shows there and I, I feel like I know this, this hotel really, really well, but I've never seen the inside of one of the bedrooms. <laughs> and he, He'd interpreted that. I mean, I don't know how he did. He'd interpreted that as her being genuinely interested and had not realised that he was meant to say, "Oh, do you want to do you want to come and see the inside of my bedroom?" I didn't tell him. I didn't break it to him. I left him with that one. I I think, you know, we've all got we've all got missed chances and and ships that passed in the night that you wake up at four o'clock in the morning suddenly realising, ah, that's what she meant. And I, I've left that one entirely to him to discover at some point there's only one final story and it was when we got back to the airport and we all went to baggage reclaim and this chap that i told you about had fallen asleep in the bath and was getting ready to go home and have to to make it up to his wife or or whatever they had to do um he'd been worried the whole flight because he didn't have his keys on him and he'd been checking and rechecking his pockets and if you listen to my episode from a couple of weeks back and the travel edition you'll know that i lost my passport at barcelona airport so i have so much sympathy for this guy but he'd been checking his pockets the whole flight and his handbag and things like that and thinking oh i haven't got my car keys here so he was laying everything on the fact that he'd packed them into his main baggage so we were all waiting at baggage reclaim the bags came out he pulled his suitcase off or he had like a duffel bag i think but he pulled it off and we all had to do the polite thing, you know, you can't just abandon, when you've all travelled together, you all have to, to, you know, get everyone to their cars at the same time. And he started emptying his bag out, you know, initially the side pockets, and he got more and more frantic looking for his car keys to the point that he unpacked his entire bag out on the floor in the arrivals by baggage claim area, where we all kind of stood around trying to make small talk and feeling pretty awkward eventually he had to admit he'd lost his keys he'd left them at the hotel or lost them along the way somewhere but he didn't have his car keys and he did have a spare set but they were at home he lived about a three and a half hour drive from the airport and his car was in the airport car park it's getting quite late it was about eight o'clock at night by now so you know there was no we couldn't work out a way to get his keys up so eventually they decided look we they were all company cars so we're all insured in each other's cars and there was someone that lived quite close to the airport so he said look i'll drive we'll both get in my car we'll drive my car to my house near the airport and then you can take my car it's a friday you take my car drive home have your evening you know get home have your evening at home and then tomorrow get your spare keys drive it up back to my house i'll drive you to the airport drop you off there and then you can go and get your car and drive home and it was quite a neat solution, but I will forever worry about this poor guy who was already going home to, to face the music and to sort of fess up for, for getting too drunk and, and losing control of himself at a work do. To then, not only that, but he'd then have to say to his wife when he got in, oh, just so you know, 
I need to do like a six or seven hour round trip tomorrow morning, Saturday morning to go and recover my car because at some point when I was drunk, I lost my car keys as well. I've got one more story for you. It's just a quick one. Nothing to do with Ireland. And it's not one of my stories. But it didn't, I, I don't know where else to fit it, but it fits quite well on the end of this episode. So it's one, a story my dad told me. We ran into someone he knew from work once. He met this, uh, this guy and he introduced me to him. And he was called Mike. And afterwards, my dad said, oh, we call him Mike the Cat. Everyone calls him Mike the Cat. And I said, why do you call him Mike the Cat? And... This, one of this story, by the way, was one of the inspirations for this podcast. My dad is full of brilliant stories like this, and I, I hope to grow up to be like him, and I've started trying to record some of my stories and my experiences before I lose them. But So why is this guy called Mike the Cat? And he said, well, we were all staying in a hotel once, three or four of us, and it was quite a small hotel, and it had a little bar. And at about 11 o'clock or whatever, we'd had a couple of beers, and the, the guy came over from reception and said look I've got to shut the bar now so he just pulled down this shutter like this lattice shutter over the bar didn't lock it um but he said you know you're welcome to stay in here but it can't serve you anymore so they stayed and they finished off their beers and they're all getting ready to go up to their rooms when one of them said oh should we have one more beer should we just have one more this guy Mike and they said what do you mean he said oh just nip over the bar and grab a beer we can we'll pay for it tomorrow I'll just grab us a you know I can grab us a couple of bottles so he'd gone over to the bar, climbed up on a bar stool on top of the bar, climbed up, kind of lift, managed to lift up this lattice, which wasn't locked, and he slid underneath it to the other side of the bar. And then as he was taking a step to climb off the bar, he had stood on you know, a, a wet towel or whatever it was, but he'd slipped completely, flipped upside down, smashed backwards into a pile of glasses sending a whole crate of clean glasses smashing onto the floor he tried to grab you know it wildly grabbed up and like grabbed one of the bottles of brandy that had a, an optic and pulled that off the wall and pulled and, and tumbled down and pulled half the bar down on top of him smashing you know hundreds of pounds worth of glasses and a couple of bottles and making the biggest scene ever um, to which of course the receptionist came running over and he got told off and he had to pay for all the damage but from that moment on because he'd shown so much agility and, and and this delicate way that he climbed over the bar he forevermore was known as Mike the Cat that's it a fairly short episode this week i hope you enjoyed it my name is cornelius this is uncredible adventures if you haven't please have a listen to some of the back catalogue they're all different every episode is different but all of them are fun and all of them are interested please have a look for me on twitter at uncredible pod is where you'll find me or check out the website www.uncredibleadventures.com i'm really pleased to have you here today this has been uncredible adventures Come under here, bro. Come on, come on. Oh, I'm alright. I don't want to get sand in my hair. But this is four cars. Yeah, <laughs>
Why is it? 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 Why is it?